Welcome to the Ambulatory Healthcare Today podcast, hosted by the NextGen Advisors. Accelerate your success with insights from a multidisciplinary team of healthcare experts as they discuss an array of topics. These timely discussions can help you better navigate the challenges of running your ambulatory care practice. Here is your host. Hello, this is Graham Brown, Senior Vice President with NextGen Healthcare. In the final two months of 2022, the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services released over 5,000 pages of new regulations, and the U.S. Congress passed into law a 4,000-plus page omnibus spending bill that included nearly 1,000 pages of healthcare provisions. So far this year, we have a new Congress with some new players in charge of healthcare policy and a presidential administration looking to roll out an ambitious post-midterm election agenda. With all of that in mind, Chris Emper, NextGen Healthcare's Government Affairs Advisor and my trusted colleague, is back with me today to help dissect and understand the top regulatory issues physician groups will want to watch in 2023. Welcome, Chris. Great to be here, Graham. Thanks for having me back. Uh, So let's start with the big picture, the next uh, stage of Cures Act data sharing rules. What policies is the Office of the National Quarter for Health IT driving to advance health data interoperability in the coming year? Great question, Graham. And this is certainly something central in the minds of many in the health IT industry and and many physician groups as well. So um, just to set the stage real quick, the 21st Century Cures Act was passed into law in 2016 and had various different policies to advance national health data interoperability and data sharing policies. Uh, The three main ones that we've been dealing with are the EHR certification program, some updates there, policies around information blocking and sort of rules of the road of what you have to do to share information with other providers, patients, and other entities. And then lastly, the trusted exchange framework, which is a uh, a manner in which the national networks and data sharing uh, exchanges, HIEs, et cetera, can exchange data. So Within those three different policies, again, the law passed in 2016, we've had staggered implementation dates, and it's moved slowly, and it's been frustrating for many in the industry. But 2023, to your question, is actually shaping up to be quite an interesting year on the implementation front. First of all, with the HR certification program, we're finally live with the Cures Act update of the HR certification program. So as of January 1st, 2023, that is now the the version of federal certified software that's accepted and has to be used by providers in federal programs like MIPS and ACOs and et cetera. So similar to the previous meaningful use program, you know, the different stages where they had to upgrade their software and use it to get credit in the federal programs, 2023 is a milestone change year and, you know, the first in several years. So that's a big milestone in the Cures Act. Then looking at information blocking, the rules have been finalized for several years now, but they're actually not being enforced because the HHS and OIG and the ONC haven't labeled and kind of rolled out exactly how they're going to enforce it, and they haven't conscripted what the penalties will be for healthcare providers, physician groups. 2023, they state, and they have stated publicly, that they're actually going to roll out and tell us what those penalties are and start enforcing those rules. So we could be looking at, we've we've known for years what these rules are, 2023 might be where the rubber hits the road and they actually start enforcing those rules. So it could be a banner year as well. And then in terms of the trusted exchange framework, the application period for initial qualified health information networks, which are sort of the certified versions 
of uh, information exchanges or networks under the program. That application was rolled out last year. And in just a couple weeks, February of 2023, we're expected to see an announcement of some initial participants approved to start in that program. So that'll actually go operational with data exchange. And again, we're in 2023, look back to 2016 in December of 2016, when the law passed, basically nothing has been actually implemented. All these interoperability policies have been, you know, thousands of pages on paper, physician groups and health IT vendors trying to figure out what they have to do with several of these policies. 2023 is the year where they're actually going to be going into effect. So it's, it's kind of an exciting time on that side. I'd be interested to uh, get your perspective on uh, the information blocking that's taking a long time to come to fruition. What's your sense of what HHS is considering in terms of penalty and enforcement um, actions that they might take? Great question. So there are, there are different actors under the rule, regulated entities. You have certified EHR vendors such as NextGen Healthcare. You have health information exchanges and HIEs. And then you have providers or physician groups, hospitals. It's a broad definition that encompasses everybody inside and outside of Medicare, just not restricted to Medicare, but all providers. So in the law, um, civil monetary penalties can be thrown at HR vendors and networks. But for physician groups and providers, the law said that HHS has to create a definition for, quote unquote, appropriate disincentives under the law if found guilty of information blocking. What does that mean? Obviously, without going to law school, you can figure out that the HHS could say whatever they want there and kind of make up a long definition. But they're actively right now in a rulemaking process where this year and probably the spring of 2023, we'll see them roll out what that looks like. As always, what is a disincentive? Something financially, whether it's a penalty in one of the in MIPS or a Medicare program or not, you know, allowing you to participate in an ACO or whatever it might be. But they're looking at the, you know, the carrot and string approach as they do with all programs and trying to kind of nudge providers where they want to go in this sense. Interesting. Okay. Well, it'll be interesting to see the details of that uh, come to fruition and, and how they're going to address the various different sectors with different approaches. Um, so that's kind of on the interoperability front. Let's talk about changes to prior authorization process. Uh, you know, physician practices consistently identify prior auth as a source of professional burnout, job frustration, job dissatisfaction, a lot of hoops to go through. Patients don't like it and certainly also react with their practices that they're interacting with when they have to wait and go through hoops too and, you know, do several phone calls. So what's what's evolving on this front? Great question. And uh, in response to probably what I would say is one of the top two or three issues that will universally get any physician fired up and say, what do you hate about the U.S. healthcare system prior off and dealing with prior off requests, the tedious process, the phone calls, the follow up, everything they have to do to get the patient what they consider the best treatment or the best drug is just an exhausting process. And this is something that the government has heard about for several years. And as part of their burden reduction efforts, and obviously this is a big burden, um, it's something that they've they've started to roll out a series of proposed regulations to try to hopefully alleviate the burden. So in December of last year, December 2022, CMS rolled out a rule that primarily impacts payers and payers in government programs. So looking at Medicare Advantage, Manage Medicaid, Manage CHIP, 
um, those entities that operate at the state level, Medicaid and SHIP, as well as uh, ACA exchange plans. So it excludes the, the commercial and employer-sponsored part of the market. But for all of those government plans, it creates a new set of requirements around APIs, application program interfaces, and data sharing requirements that they have for both providers and patients around the prior auth process. So these payers are going to have to stand up these new APIs. Ultimately, there will be one API they'll have to stand up that's going to connect with providers and will allow them to actually exchange information and create a new timeline, whether it's 72 hours or um, 96 hours. It depends on the, the type of service, which there's some legal definitions in the rule round. But ultimately, they'll have a new process there that they'll, the payers will be required to follow and to offer up this information to providers in an electronic way, which the providers can message them back and hopefully, theoretically, streamline the process. So this was a proposed rule. If finalized at some point later this year, the proposal said it would go into effect January 1st of 2026. So it's still a few years off in the future. One of the reasons why is there's obviously some technical infrastructure that would have to be built to enable this, both on the payer side with the API plus on the provider side with the API. And the provider API would be realized through a new certification requirement on HR vendors. And there's actually a pending proposed rule from ONC um, around several different Cures Act issues and updates to the three programs I just mentioned, plus some prior off API requirements that should be released soon. So when you think about prior auth and different stakeholders involved. You have payers, you have providers, and then you have kind of provider technology vendors that they use. The HHS and CMS and ONC are looking at an all the above approach and issuing separate regulations impacting each of those stakeholders, driving towards something in about 2026 or thereabouts, where maybe we'll see a, a new system that may or may not reduce burdens. Um, but that's at least the, the government's plan right now. And again, 2023, looking ahead, uh, we'll see a lot of paper, a couple hundred or thousands of pages uh, laying out this process. So it, it should be at least interesting. I won't say exciting, but will be interesting to see what they come up with there. Okay. So so rulemaking, regulatory changes, but no real fix to this system in terms of what provider practices are experiencing and how they're interacting with payers for a couple years yet in terms of, is my workflow different? Is this burden reduced? Correct. And, and also critical to note, you know, as you as you're as your physician group or physician who's following these regs coming out, don't get lost in the press release from CMS. And when they say they're improving the prior authorization process, remember that it's only for those government sponsored payers. So if your biggest payer is a local blues plan, this rule does not impact them. Yeah. So it, it's an important distinction there. And it is. In some ways, can add to burden. But I think theoretically, as they're doing with all payment policies through Medicare, the government tries to influence the commercial side of the market and maybe they'll get everybody moving in that direction. Indeed. And we often and we often see the commercial market follow in fairly close step behind and recognize, you know, they want to they want to reduce the burden for their provider population too, and the in the practices that they're working with, as long right. as they're maintaining their utilization management goals. Uh, at the end of the day, well, let's indeed hope that those efforts uh, produce something meaningful here in the in the coming years. Price transparency, having providers offer patients kind of detailed pre visit cost estimates, that's been in the works for a while here. It's been really hard to implement. Provider organizations, hospitals, healthcare systems, 
even having the details to be able to really specify what is the cost to the patient, let alone calculated in the context of the insurance coverage they have, their deductibles, their co-pays, their co-insurance. There's so many moving parts to any individual circumstance that this is not a one-size-fits-all solution. So given that, I'd be interested to understand where things stand in price transparency and what you're anticipating uh, is going to be the evolution in this space in the year ahead. Yeah, great question. And I think price transparency actually runs in parallel with uh, prior authorization, which we were just talking about, as really the two big financial issues that the government has already passed law. Congress has passed laws several years on these, and it's in this multi-year implementation phase, whereas interoperability and the Cures Act rules are really around clinical data and what you have to do there. But consider that for price transparency, the No Surprises Act is the law here. It was passed in December of 2020, and there's a you know another multi-year implementation process here. As you mentioned, around good faith cost estimates and the requirement for providers to issue you know pre-visit documents that state this is what this visit is going to cost. There are a couple different uh, provisions and really categories of requirements under the law. The, the first one that rolled out in January of 2022 is for uninsured patients. So there's a requirement that went into effect for providers, all providers, not just Medicare. This is, again, one of those umbrella issues to issue these cost estimate documents as of January 1st, 2022. As part of that, there's a, um, a part two of that uninsured patient requirement that would require um, providers who are responsible or the primary billing provider in the service to coordinate any other charges from a lab or pharmacy or other you know, providers that might be, if it's a surgery, the anesthesiologist or anything else that goes in that bill and get those charges. That has been delayed. It was actually supposed to go into effect January 1st, 2023, but December of 22, CMS issued another delay to that, which was welcome news for providers because I think the industry was very much not ready for that. But that is something that's that's pending and potentially going to be sorted out through the regulatory process this year. Beyond the uninsured patients, which in some ways is, is easier because you're not dealing with insurance, um, there are uh, the law calls for these good faith cost estimates in the form of an explan- uh, advanced explanation of benefits document, AEOB, from an insurer to be issued to patients who are going to have insurance and are going to submit claims. So this will require coordination and collaboration between providers and insurers around what visits are scheduled, what codes might they be um, uh, billing, what is the uh, reimbursement, what is the patient's you know, copay under their plan. Um, so similar to, as I mentioned, the, the rules that require the co-providers uh, of certain services to work together, they haven't figured out how to do this. There's the data sharing standards are immature slash don't exist. Government uses the word immature. It really means they don't exist right now. But there is a process, um, multi-stakeholder process, trying to leverage some of the work that HL7 has done with the FIRE standard ongoing right now to try to figure out what those data sharing standards are. But you know, again, 2023 might be the year that they actually roll out a proposal for what that looks like. And ultimately, that process 
like all these other rules that are multi-year efforts, once it's finalized, it will eventually be implemented. And think, consider as a provider that before every visit, if a patient asks for one of these documents, it says, how, is it, how much is this going to cost? Whether they're uninsured or insured, um, you're going to have to supply that information working along with other providers and payers. And they're kind of sorting out that rule this year. So I, I think it's a a really important issue, one that probably isn't getting the the attention nationwide that it should be given the impact here and the potential burden for providers. And again, 2023 might be a big year for implementation. Yeah, the the one hand gives and one takes away in terms of provider burden, it sounds like as we're uh, going through these topics here. You know, it's, it's a complex one and you can see why it's taking as long to get implemented. I'm not sure that I have a lot of hope that it's going to get sorted out real soon, quite frankly. Um, there's just a lot of moving parts there Absolutely. and a lot of vested interests in terms of I don't want to have to do this work and trying to pass it off to another payer player in the game, I imagine, is part of the dynamic. Absolutely. Um, let's shift to value-based care. On the last podcast that we did, I had the chief executive officer and chief medical officer of uh, NextGen's partner, Vitalize Health, uh, join me. And they were talking about their kind of unique ACO model, but we also touched on some of the changes that CMS made to the ACO program. Uh, a lot of those came into effect either January 1 this year or are going to take effect uh, January 1 next year and the year after. But I love your perspective on some of those reforms and what CMS is trying to accomplish broadly and what do you think the impact is going to be in terms of participation in ACOs and value-based care? Yeah, so I, I, like other issues, uh, it's an interesting time right now in value-based care and with ACOs. So December of or November, I should say, of, of 2022, uh, CMS just finalized some major reforms to the Medicare Shared Savings ACO program, which which you mentioned, you discussed a little bit on, on the last podcast. The whole goal of those reforms is to encourage more ACOs, more providers, more covered lives, more covered beneficiaries under the program. And because it's a complex program that involves five-year participation agreements from ACOs, it had to be rolled out in phases. So even though it was finalized last year, most of the key reforms that will enable new or existing ACOs to re-up for another five-year agreement won't go into effect until January 1 of 2024. But the application period for the January 2024 start date is in the spring and summer. It usually concludes in June of 2023. So right now, there's a lot of activity in the industry trying to make sense of these rules, you know, updated benchmarking policies, updated quality measure reporting policies for ACOs, and a host of other provisions that are generally positive for ACOs, but kind of change the calculus of different organizations, risk-bearing entities, physician groups, who either have experience in the ACO market or, or are new to it, and these might be the changes they're looking for. So they're all kind of considering what that looks like. And I think following the application process this year, seeing what type of partnerships might make sense under the new rules that didn't under the previous rules, is going to be pretty interesting to watch. Meanwhile, you also have the ACO reach model um, just starting off uh, January 1 of this year. And that's a rebranded version of the direct contracting ACO model that was implemented over the last few years. And that saw um, a revamp last year, a new focus on health equity and um, serving underserved populations and some tweaking of the regs there. And you know that saw a boost in participation. CMS released the data starting January 1 of this year. So overall, the goal of CMS is to drive everybody into an accountable care model. There are a couple different models. ACO Reach is a big one. Shared Savings Program is a big one. And there are also rumors that they're going to be rolling out potentially some 
dual payer, Medicare, Medicaid, and other models this year to kind of build on what they've done there to try to encourage more entities to take on risk for longer periods of time. So that's kind of the trend that uh, CMS is, is under. They've rolled out some of the reforms, they're implementing others, but it's always interesting when they finish the reforms and then it's up to the marketplace to sort out how they're received. And I think with those major shared savings program ACO reforms, the first half of 2023 is that time where it's you know interesting to be in, in the market and in the industry to see exactly how they're received and, and what ends up happening. Yeah, indeed. I mean, certainly the the development of the REACH model is driving towards some specific policy objectives in terms of underserved populations that haven't traditionally been in a managed environment. Um, and it's been pure fee for service. And, and so the costs have been high. But additionally, really recognizing that the prospective payment model and allowing a higher level of risk and moving into capitation can be a really good carrot for organizations that are sophisticated enough and organized enough to manage that care effectively, uh, they can really drive into and embrace this uh, goal of CMS to um, move all Medicare beneficiaries into some sort of value-based payment arrangement. So final topic for today, Congress. Uh, The 117th Congress, the outgoing Congress, passed an omnibus bill at the end of last year in December that had a lot of bipartisan support. There was a number of uh, representatives from both parties that really signed up to advance a number of kind of policy initiatives that had broad agreement across the aisle. What advanced through that legislation and what are you anticipating from the incoming Congress in terms of what they're going to be focused on and what they might want to achieve? Good question. So uh, looking at uh, the end of last year, you, you mentioned in the, the intro to the podcast, 4,000 page uh, piece of legislation was passed and about a thousand pages of that were actually health care provisions. The reason being is that in an election year with a divided Congress, there weren't a lot of health care laws or really there were very few that were passed last year. And everybody was kind of waiting for the lame duck after the elections to put together all of the health care provisions that needed to pass. Tucked into that were reauthorizations of expiring programs. Primarily, the bill was a budget bill. It's an omnibus spending bill that extends federal government spending for agencies and programs through the end of the 2023 federal fiscal year, which lasts through September of next year. So it did uh, increase or decrease or overall was an increase, but spread out um, updated funding levels for the various different uh, budget programs. For healthcare, it's not as important because when you think about Medicare and Medicaid, those are mandatory programs that have different funding streams. So the the funding for those programs themselves were not um, impacted, but there are many different grant programs that providers are involved in that saw a boost in most cases, but amended funding levels. But all the in terms of extraneous from the budget uh, provisions, that thousand pages of healthcare-only specific policy that passed into law. Think about telehealth, um, extensions of existing COVID emergency Medicare flexibility policies through the end of 2024. So kind of decoupling that uh, end of the public health emergency from COVID to continue on with telehealth policies, a mitigation of the previous Medicare payment cuts that were scheduled to go into effect January uh, 1st of 2023, and a host of different other um, provisions uh, regulatory tweaks, as well as a increase in funding for different mental health care programs for this year and a five-year reauthorization of some, some other programs. Um, but really, uh, several different initiatives and, and policies that had 
pretty broad, far-reaching bipartisan support, and that were developed over the course of last year were, were tucked into that bill. And uh, as is always the case, they'll have to be implemented through the regulatory process, many of those provisions that we'll see play out this year. But that was it for last Congress and kind of cleared the deck and, and moved us as shifted, as you mentioned, into a new Congress this year. Um, looking at a divided Congress with Republicans in control of the House and Democrats maintaining control um, in the Senate, there's a necessary, it is necessary, I should say now, to pass bipartisan legislation if they're going to pass anything. And in terms of health care, that means that the big ideas that are kind of driving the base of each party, um, expansion of Medicare and Medicaid and, and ACA on the Democratic side, kind of pairing back of some of those programs on the Republican side, they're not going to be passing in the law in the next two years. So the things that they're going to be more focused on are areas of bipartisan cooperation, uh, which include many of the topics we, we just talked about, implementation of value-based care, interoperability, price transparency, prior auth reforms, those type of policies. Because the laws I mentioned, you know, Cures Act, No Surprises Act, those laws were passed with 90 plus percent support of both political parties. And looking at this year, I think they're looking at making permanent reforms to some of the things they touched on in the omnibus last year, but only on a temporary basis. Medicare payment has come back up. Everybody's unhappy with MIPS and MACRA and the, the state of that program and the looming and, and coming back around payment cuts. Looking at telehealth and potentially passing permanent reforms, not just two-year reforms now that we're in this next phase here. And mental health, I think coming out of COVID, it's an area of bipartisan agreement, you know, looking at that and, and figuring out uh, what the best federal response is coordinated across different programs with all the different grants. Beyond that, I'll note that there are some reauthorizations and budget deadlines that will force some action this fall and regulatory oversight. So continuing to be involved in some of these laws that were passed, checking in on the agencies, CMS, ONC, um, HHS, and with a divided Congress, expect a stepped up, as I already hinted at, um, level of regulatory action from the Biden administration. And I think with less regulations, you see um, more legislation sometimes. And with more uh, less legislation, you see more regulations. And that's really the, the point we're at in now. So unfortunately, for those like myself who are busy reading the 10,000s of pages of regs that came out November or December last year, um, this year seems to be uh, on track to probably exceed that uh, at, at some level. So um, all things considered, I think it'll be a, a busy year on the regulatory uh, front for physician groups to keep track of. Well, I'm glad that uh, both we and our listeners have you reading those pages and summarizing it and bringing your insights uh, to what the implications are. Uh, so thank you very much, Chris Emper, for joining us today and also to our listeners for tuning in. This is Graham Brown with NextGen Healthcare. Thank you and have a great day. Thanks for listening to the Ambulatory Healthcare Today podcast hosted by the NextGen Advisors. Never miss an episode by subscribing at nextgen.com slash podcast. To see a list of products and services tailored for ambulatory care practices, visit nextgen.com.